0: You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. <clears throat> well, I'm going to teach from right here tonight, so don't be thrown off by it. Uh, just get over it now, and uh, we'll be able to focus here. So tonight we're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which has to be one of the most quoted sections of scripture, especially when it comes to weddings. Uh, I, I met with a couple last week who's, uh, who I'm doing their wedding in May. I'm meeting with a couple uh, this, um, uh, this, this Sunday, I think. Uh, I'm doing their wedding next fall, and then I'm meeting with another couple later this month doing their wedding. That's one of the cool things about being a college pastor is, uh, you know, you see a lot of students come to your ministry, get hitched, and, um, you know, you get to be a part of it. Sometimes I feel like I, I lead this, like, love connection ministry, and I'm like, man, what the heck? Like, what's going on here? Because I'm, you know, anyways. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's funny because this, this, it's not funny, but this, this passage is quoted so much at weddings and typically followed, you know, by like, like a unity candle or, you know, that thing where they take the sand and they pour it in this thing together. And I don't really get that. And then all sand comes together and I don't, I don't get, wow, there's sand like together now. Is my sand your sand? Our sand's together. It's our sand. I don't know. But uh, it's quoted a lot. It's quoted a lot in other, in other things as well. I mean, there's a, there's a really popular song right now, that, is, that has drawn a lot of attention to itself and a lot of attention to some social issues. In fact, this song just won some awards at the Grammys, was performed at the Grammys, um, and it quotes part of this passage. Um, we're really familiar uh, to some extent with what it says. And I don't know if you've ever read the book um, Crazy Love by Francis Chan, uh, but he says something in there. He says, in reference to First Corinthians 13, he says, But even these words have grown tired and overly familiar, haven't they? And you think about what he's saying, and, and, and really he's getting at something I want us to see tonight. There's so much more meat in this text that we're familiar with than what we've probably ever chewed on before. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's kind of like the difference between lollipops and meat. You know, our, our culture is constantly feeding us these lollipop-like messages. Um, they taste really good, so they satisfy us, but there's almost zero nutrition there. Honestly, some of you come from churches like this. Some of you come from churches that are just handing out these lollipop sort of messages. So you walk away from church feeling satisfied because it tasted good, it felt good, uh, but you you don't really grow a whole lot in maturity in your faith because there's not any nutrition in a lollipop. And so the problem is we're used to having all these lollipops by culture and maybe our past churches handed to us that when someone finally hands us meat, we don't really know what to do with it. I mean, I, I imagine like going to Texas Roadhouse, somebody putting a steak on my plate and not knowing what to do with it, you know, somebody who all they do is eat or lick lollipops, they pick up the piece of meat, lick it, and they're like, hmm, that's really good. They set it back down on the plate and they think, you know, there's got to be more to it than that. But you just can't figure out how to get to whatever's more that's there. And, and, and I, I, mean, I guess what I'm trying to show is our steady, steady habits of the Bible, I think, are com- comparable, comparable to this, and honestly pretty terrible. I mean, in our personal steady times, we rarely go below the surface. We usually walk away having just barely scratched the surface. We've licked the surface, but we've not yet bit into the core of the message. And, and I think in this particular case, with First Corinthians 13, the biggest reason that we miss the meat of this text is we rip it out of its context. And its context is in Corinth. You know, how many times do you read this, or hear it read at weddings or other events, how many times do you, do you read this and it feels more like it comes straight out of a scene from the notebook, you know? I mean, I... I how I many of you, anybody here seen The Notebook? Every girl raised her hand. I, I haven't seen it, but, uh, you know, the, there's a scene. Uh, I'm serious, I haven't seen it. Uh, but there's a scene, you know, on the front cover of the video. And so I, I, I Googled the other night, I Googled on, you know, or YouTube. I'm sorry, YouTube uh, The Notebook. And of course, the scene pops up. And I think sometimes we read this as if it's coming straight out of the scene where the girl, um, Rachel McAdams, and who's the dude in there? Uh, Ryan Gosling okay so they're in the boat and it starts to pour rain you remember that scene and and so it's pouring rain and they're like you know having this deep conversation they pull up to the dock and Rachel McAdams gets out of the boat and she goes kind of stomping up you know the beach and uh, and then Ryan Gosling pulls the boat out of the water and she goes up the beach but then she comes back and what does she say I don't know what the context of this is I guess I'm ripping this out of context but she says she says why didn't you ever write me and what does Ryan say to her he goes, I wrote you 365 days. I wrote you every day for one year. And she goes, you did? And I, and I think we picture 1 Corinthians 13 coming in right here. It's like Ryan Gosling takes it and he goes, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. And then after that, you know, that's where they make out. And then eventually they go and there's like this sex scene and stuff. But this isn't, this is not like why Paul is writing this. I mean, he's, he's, this is not an excerpt from a letter written. This is an excerpt. Of a letter written by this unmarried guy to a church that sounds like it's kind of hacked him off because they're acting really immature in, these, in all these different ways. And understanding the tone of voice of what you're reading, especially in scripture, is extremely important. You know, again, I think when we read this, oftentimes we pick it up and we read it, or it's read at weddings, like with uh, this more, almost like it's come straight out of this Shakespearean sonnet, you know? Like it's straight from a scene from Romeo and Juliet. In fact, there's probably people who honestly, when they hear, love is patient, love is kind, they're thinking it's straight from Shakespeare. You know? Some of you, it's because you had the King James Version of the Bible, and it's impossible to read that without doing it in, like this British accent. Love is patient. <laughs> love is kind. That's more like Sean Connery, I guess, but... Paul's tone, listen to me, Paul's tone, it's very passionate, but it's passionate not because he's trying to get these people in bed with him. It's passionate because he wants them to see that the one thing that had just changed the world is the one thing that would continue to be the thing that would change the world. And so we get to chapter 13, verse 1, and I just want to read the whole, the whole chapter here. He says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And now if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I gave away all I have, and if I deliver my body up to, the, to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse eight, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, But then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, think back to the past three weeks of this study. You know, you go all the way back to the beginning. in, In in the beginning, what we saw is the Corinthians, they had been asking Paul some questions, and one of the questions they had asked was, Okay, so what does it look like to be spirit filled? What does it look like to be somebody who's led by the Holy Spirit? And as we read chapter 12, what we begin to see is this question um, specifically was revolving around this thing that was happening in the church. There were some that regarded themselves as more spiritual or less spiritual than others based on the spiritual gifts that they had received or had not received. And what we see, and what we're especially going to see starting next week as we get into chapter 14, what we see is that, this conversation really revolved around two gifts in particular. Speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy. Two very mysterious gifts. And so what was happening is there, there were certain people who supposedly were speaking in tongues and prophesying, and other people saw those certain people as the most spiritual or the most spirit-filled because of what they were doing. They, they held those spiritual gifts up to be super special. But then last week what we saw is Paul got really detailed in how the church is like a body. The gospel according to Mr. Potato Head. That was last week. We saw how he got real detailed in how the church is like a body. There's one body, but one body made up of many parts. And what he's getting at is every single one of us who have put our faith in Christ and now become part of the body of Christ, we all are a part. We all have a purpose. And no member or no part is more or less important than the other parts. All have a significant role. And it's important that we embrace our place in the body. Apart from Jesus, we're a mess. Apart from being connected to the body of Christ, we're a mess. And what we're going to see in the next couple weeks is Paul, he's going to get us into some very interesting conversation, very interesting discussion, discussion that's going to center around these more mysterious spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues and prophecy. That's where we're headed uh, next week. But, But what we're going to see in that is it's a very controversial discussion. Um, it's, it's controversial and oftentimes gets very divisive because, as it was in their church and as it is today, these gifts, are, they're mysterious. They're, uh, we look at them and they're very unknown. And they're hard to understand. And, and because of that, there's fear sometimes involved in looking at these gifts. And history has shown us that talking about these uh, has been very divisive in the church. I mean, entire churches and denominations have been divided on these issues of speaking in tongues and prophecies. Um, in, in fact, last fall, there was a conference that took place in California. And the conference, the whole thing, it was about trying to prove or show through Scripture that speaking in tongues and prophecy uh, no longer happened today. Trying to prove that those particular spiritual gifts ceased after the apostolic era, the era where the apostles like Paul and, and the 12 apostles um, lived, the, the, that era. Um, and during that conference a very well-known pastor. Many of you, you'd recognize his name. He went uh, and stood out the co- outside the conference and, and just from doing a couple different things, he stood on the other side of the fence of this argument. He believes those gifts continue today. And, and he began to do some things that at face value weren't really divisive, but it ended up uh, sparking this massive show, social media-like you know, discussion. And, and there was a lot of division that came from it. Now, that's not always the result. Um, something really cool I got to experience two weeks ago I was teaching out in West Texas at this youth event, and three churches, three denominations came together and uh, and worshiped together all weekend long and then ended on Sunday morning with with all three churches coming together and worshiping. Three churches, three denominations, then I'm teaching, then there's a band that's from a fourth uh, type of denomination. All denominations stood on different sides of this issue and other issues, yet unified in worship. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul, what he's doing is He's preparing the way for this discussion about these spiritual gifts to effectively and constructively take place. So, what I'm getting at is this this chapter 13 is not a random romantic interlude by Paul. It fits and it flows perfectly with the rest of the conversation we've been having up to this point. So, last week we ended in chapter 12, verse 27. And uh, that's exactly where we're going to pick up this week. I'm going to be taking a lot of water tonight because I'm losing my voice. So bear with me. Chapter 12, verse 27 is where we left off last week. And listen to what he says. He says, "Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues." And then he asks these questions. He says, "Are all apostles? Are all prophets?" Are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And then he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now I want you to get a picture of what he's saying here as he gets to chapter 13, verse 1. He says, "If if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, <clears throat> but have not love, what does he say he is? A noisy gong or a clanging symbol?" Now that word "noisy" is the word um, it's the word uh, "echo." In Greek, it's the word "echo." Everybody say "echo." What does that sound like in English? Echo, echo, echo. Anybody ever been to the mountains, or maybe been to the Grand Canyon or West Texas Paladero Canyon, and you've stood on the edge of the cliff or down in the valley, and you've yelled something? what happens? Echo, echo, echo. It's loud, but it also, it bounces back and forth. Another way you'll see this word translated in scripture is resounding. So he's saying, if you have, if you speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, you are a noisy gong, a resounding gong. Um, and so this is what a gong sounds like. Uh, it sounds like that. But he doesn't just say like, it's, it's, you know, just a gong. He says resounding gong. So it's, over and over and over. Now let me ask you a question. This is a, a, an incredible picture that he gives us. When you hear that sound, what does that do to you emotionally? That resounding noise, what, is that, what, what emotion does that draw up in you? How do you feel? Are you like, mmm, I could totally go to sleep to that? No, it's annoying, right? It's loud, and it's really obnoxious. And then he goes on to say, or oh, you're like a clanging cymbal. And so you got cymbals here. Now, what does that do to you? I mean, how does that feel? Are you, are you all like, oh, you know, lay back, go to sleep? No, I mean, he's, he's really trying to draw out some very particular emotions from you. And here's Here's what he's wanting you to see. What he's wanting you to see is if you don't have love, it doesn't matter what language you're speaking. It doesn't matter if you're speaking in tongues. It doesn't matter how gifted you are, whatever spiritual gift you have. If you don't have love, he's saying you are nothing but a loud, obnoxious gong, or symbol. Now, some of you, as I'm saying that, you're thinking, man, that's how like all the conversations with my parents are. They call me, and I think they hate me, and so it's just like, blah, 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 over and over. Some of you are like, my girlfriend's like that, my, my boyfriend's like that. If that's the case, you need to break up with them, because you're going to be hearing that the rest of your life if you marry them. But, but see this, see this, and think about this. How, how often is that all that non-Christians hear from us? I mean, think about what Paul is saying here. How often is this all that non-Christians hear from us? Every conversation absent of love? That's what it sounds like to the non-believer. Every sermon absent of love? That's what it sounds like, really, not just to the non-believer, but to anybody. Every outreach, event, or attempt absent of love? It's what it sounds like every flyer that you hand out every poster that you put up to promote whatever you're a part of absent of love every Twitter post that you post absent of love every Facebook rant absent of love that's what it sounds like this is what Paul is trying to get us to see how effective are we when our message and our, act, and our actions are absent of love? That's a question. It's not rhetorical. How effective are we when our message or our actions are absent of love? We're not effective at all. All we are is we are loud and we're obnoxious. Now, I want us to chew on this a little bit longer. So Paul, he's comparing uh, these instruments, the gong and the cymbals, to the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. But if you read verses two through three, he lists more spiritual gifts. So he says speaking in tongues, he says prophecy, he says the gift of wisdom, the gift of knowledge, the gift of faith, like this faith that's willing to take risks, um, the gift of generosity. And then he even goes far enough to say, if you even go to extreme measures and are willing to give up your life for you know, whatever this purpose is, he, he's, he's incorporating all these gifts. And you remember verse, verse 27, chapter 12. He says, now you're the body of Christ and individually members of it, you back up to 1214, he says, "For the body does not consist of one member but of many, so we 're all part of one body, but many individual parts make up that body. So he 's really not just talking about one instrument it's like, it 's more like a band. Um, one band is made up of multiple instruments, multiple musicians. You guys come up, come up here for a second. One band is made up of multiple musicians multiple instruments if you think i'm crazy with this analogy i want you to go back real quick to chapter 12 verse 7 read that chapter 12 verse 7 as they come up here it says to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for what for the common good that that word it's those two words in english or one word in greek and it's the greek word symphero. everybody say symphero. what does that sound similar to symphony i mean this is a biblical beautiful concept Um, How many in here, any of you in here, um, uh, y'all march in the UNT Green Brigade marching band? We got how many? One, two, anybody else? All right. What do you play? Yell it out. Saxophone. That's DJ, everybody. What what do you play? Clarinet. Sweet. What do you play? Oh, okay, okay, okay. (laughs) She's like, I want to be a part of this uh, flute. Um, (laughs) I'm just messing with you. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever been to a, a football game at UNT, you've seen the band march. And there's like 300, 400 members. Am I overboard on that? There's like 400 people, 400 instruments. It's like a symphony, except they march and make other noises and stuff. But there's multiple instruments. Tonight we have two guitars, we have a cello, and really we have two voices here. Three, Tony's not singing, but we got two voices here. So five instruments making up this band. Uh, yeah, look, look, look at what Paul says in verse 28, chapter 12, verse 28. He says after saying you're the body of Christ and individually members of it, he says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. I mean, these are all different gifts, all different spiritual gifts in the same way that we have different instruments up here in this band. Two guitars, two voices, and a cello. Here's the first thing I want you to see tonight. First thing is this. Each instrument has a unique sound, and each instrument has a unique purpose. If you're taking notes, write that junk down. Each instrument has a unique sound and a unique purpose. Now, I want, I want, I want you to experience this, okay? Again, studying Scripture, engage as many senses as you can, so we're going to do that tonight. Engage our sense of sight, uh, sound, noise, smell. These guys smell a little bit up here, Tanya. Tanya. I can't smell you. Um, but let's start with you, Tanya. <laughs> let's start with you, Tanya. Just uh, let's, let's hear what the cello sounds like. Each instrument has unique sound, unique purpose. <coughs> so every instrument has a unique sound and a unique purpose. All right, you can stop. So the cello, the cello's purpose, you know, when I hear the cello, um, I, it brings a fuller sound to the music, um, it, it just makes what they're playing way fuller, way sexier, I can't think of a better word than that. Um, you didn't realize we brought a cello tonight to make our worship music sound sexier. Uh, no, it just sounds, it gives it a fuller sound, right? Are you following? Am, am I right? I'm not a musician. Is that kind of no. right? No. The fuller part? Fuller, yes. Oh, fuller, sexier, yes. Not no, much. no. Okay. Well, it gives it a fuller <laughs> sound, okay? So then, that's the cello. Then you have a guitar. One of y'all, one of y'all give me like a, a, a basic GCD chord progression? Every, every white guy in America knows chord Corbett. So. so, you know, give us a little thing there. Okay, so, so the guitar, its purpose, it, it, you know, has unique sound, unique purpose. Its purpose really is to carry the tune. It carries the tune of the song. You got the cello. It, it makes it a fuller sound. And then you have voices. I'm not going to make these guys sing acapella here, but okay, there you go. You have voices, and, and you know the voice carries the message. If there is a message, there's not always a message. I went to, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the White House uh, coffee shop, um, Scripture and Brian. Wednesday night, every Wednesday night, eight, 8 to 10.30, they have jazz night. And it's really actually awesome because uh, jazz in, in, in Denton is great because of all the UNT students. Um, but there's this lady that was singing this Wednesday night, And she gets up there, and it was really awesome slash really awkward because she wasn't, like, making any words with her mouth. Uh, I think she, I think you call it scatting. Not to be confused with animal feces, but, like, (laughs) skit scatting or whatever. And so she's just, you know, making all these noises. An entire song, no words, just, like, scatting. And uh, that sounds terrible. But there's, like, different ways to sing that communicate different messages or create different emotions. Operatic singing is more dramatic. Uh, you have R&B, you know, R&B, it's a little bit more, you know, sexy. I'm using sexy a lot tonight, dude. Uh, you got country, it's just straight up annoying. Eminem, angry. you got all these different, you've got all these different voices that communicate different things. Then you have percussion. And percussion's purpose is to uh, is to carry the rhythm. And so you got cymbals, you got um, gongs, and I wish Jake could have been here tonight, uh, bring, bring the drums. Um, you know, I wanted to play the drums when I was younger. Um, but my parents, we couldn't, or my family, we couldn't afford any drums. So I, I would get Tupperware, and um, I, would, I, would, I would take Tupperware, and I'd put the Tupperware out. And then for the, for the snare, I'd fill that Tupperware with rice. And then I'd take the wooden spoons from Mom's kitchen and play the Tupperware. And then, you know those little shaker things? Um, I figured out that in, in, uh, in tape dispensers, there's actually, like, sand in there. So I don't know if you can hear that or not. <laughs> but you got the little shaker going on here, so I would use this. But you, you got all sorts of percussion instruments um, and, and the purpose of that unique sound, unique purpose the purpose is to carry the rhythm. rhythm. Each instrument has a unique sound and a unique purpose. And the same is true of all spiritual gifts in the church. Each gift has a unique function, it has a unique purpose. They're all different, they're all beautiful, they're all purposeful. And there's some instruments that that you look at in a band, there's some instruments that you look at where everyone kind of wishes they could play it. Like some are more popular than others. I think I've shared before about my secret, not so secret anymore, desire to learn to play the saxophone and the piano because, man, those instruments are sexy. Throw the word in again. They're amazing. You know, you you drop a piano, or or not drop a piano, but you play the piano, you, uh, anyways, you see what I'm saying? But then there's some instruments, you know, a lot of people want to, you know, when they're growing up, want to play the drums because they're really cool. But there's some instruments that people look at, and they're like, eh, I really don't want to play that. Like, I used to think flutes were lame until I went to one of our students' uh, uh, flute recital last semester, and that girl, like, stinking, shredded that flute to pieces. I thought she was going to, like, walk off the stage and start kicking over amplifiers and stuff <laughs> and just drop the flute as she went. But, you know, flutes are cool, but, you know, there's some instruments people are just like, ah, I'm not really interested in that. I want to play the drums or something cool. And the same is true of spiritual gifts. The same is true of spiritual gifts. For some reason, their spiritual gifts... Uh, that get more attention than others. There's some that are more popular than others. Um, teaching, preaching is one of those gifts that gets more attention than others. Main reason being is it's very visible in the church. You know, the people that have that gift are typically the ones up in front of people teaching, whether it's from a platform or in a classroom. Um, speaking in tongues and prophecy, those are very popular and um, desired gifts. Uh, that was the issue in, in Corinth, and that's oftentimes the issue in the church today. Again, because those are very like visible gifts. They're interesting-looking gifts. And the result is there's gifts like administration and the spiritual gift of encouragement and counseling and hospitality and generosity and service that get overlooked. But read what Paul says in verse 29. He says, are all apostles? Are all prophets? He asks these rhetorical questions back to back, over and over. Do all or are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? What's the answer to all those questions? An obvious and an emphatic no. And the point he's getting at is nobody has all of the spiritual gifts. Certain people have certain gifts, just like in a band. Like certain people play certain instruments. Not everybody can play all the instruments. Like Jay Wood, I don't think he can play the cello. Uh, Tanya said earlier, she plays like four chords on the guitar. That's it. Now, there's some people who can play multiple instruments, but even then, there's certain instruments that you excel more at than in other instruments, and the same is true with spiritual gifts. I mean, just because, just because you want to have a certain spiritual gift doesn't mean that you have it. If that's not your gift, then that's not your place in the church. That's not your function in the church, again, just like in the band. Like, if, if it's not one of their gifts, then... You know, if I said, hey, hey, Wag, get up and go play the cello, like, that's just going to be terrible. If, if, if Wag and Tanya switch, I mean, the quality of music is totally going to drop, like, seriously. Look at verse 31. It is, though, right? Yeah, but still. <laughs> Cheap that hurts, shot. hurts, man. That hurts. But look at verse 31. So he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. You know, if you're, if, if you're intrigued by that statement... You think, oh, you know, okay, cool, I'm going to desire the higher gifts. I want you to circle earnestly desire. Because that, that, those two words together are, are super, super crucial. In other words, it means your motives behind, behind your desire need to be pure. You know, so a question to ask yourself is, why do you desire to have certain abilities? Why do you desire to have certain gifts or to be able to do certain things? You know, so many guys come to me and say, I feel called to be a pastor. But all they see is what happens up here on the stage, and they're attracted to the idea of being up in front of people and being known and being able to speak in, in front of people. Not really understanding what it really is to be a pastor and what really happens when you're the pastor. A lot of people say they want to speak in tongues. They're intrigued by that. They want to prophesy. And the reason for that is, is they're intrigued by it. You have to ask yourself the question, Why? Why do you have the desire to be able to do this or to do that? God does not give us spiritual gifts to make rock stars out of us. God gives us spiritual gifts to advance his kingdom and strengthen his church. God didn't make you good at what you're good at so that you can become famous. God made you good at what you're good at so that you can make him famous by doing, being good at what you're good at. And you look at verse 31 again, so he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. You know, at this point, he really turns the corner of what he's saying. He says, there's still a piece missing. And that's when we get to chapter 13, verse 1. He says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Here's the next big thing I want want you to see in this text. Love is to spiritual gifts as sheet music is to instruments hear that. Love is to spiritual gifts as sheet music is to instruments. I, w- I want you to see this. I want you to, like, experience this. So if somebody knows how to play one of these instruments, the guitar, the cello, whatever, or the shaker, um, whatever it is, but they don't have any musical cues to follow, then they're just obnoxious and loud. So, so let's, let's do the cello. Um, why don't you give me a G? I mean, at first you're like, ah, oh. and then after a while you're like, ah, oh. <laughs> you know, uh, you can stop for real. Uh. <clears throat> but remember what he's saying. Again, we can't rip this out of the context because this is, what, this is where we get in trouble with this, with this passage. If you rip this out of context, you miss seeing really what he wants you to see. And that is, in context, he's talking about the body of Christ. He's not talking about one spiritual gift. Again, chapter 12, verse 14, for the body doesn't consist of one member, but of, of many members. So the picture that Paul is giving isn't of one spiritual gift being used by itself, but multiple gifts being used at once. So I want everybody to give me a G just over and over. Give me a G. The thing. What Paul wants us to see is, okay, so remember, love is to spiritual gifts as music, sheet music is to instruments. You know, if we know how to play an instrument, but we don't have any musical cues to follow, uh, then we're just loud and obnoxious. I mean, over time, we're just loud, obnoxious, and it kind of creates an awkward environment like that just did right there. Uh, I mean, are you, are, you, are, you, are you seeing this picture? Okay, so, so chapter 13, verse 1, he says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, if I have any spiritual gift, doesn't matter what that gift is, but I don't have love, I'm just being loud and obnoxious. Now, I want to come back to this illustration here in a second. Y'all stay right there. But read the rest of what he says in in verses 2 through 3. He says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And he says, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, or deliver up my body to the flames like I'm I'm a martyr, he says, but if I have not love, I, I gain nothing. I mean, this is powerful language that he's using here. Are you feeling that? Powerful language. It does not matter what gift you have. It does not matter to what extreme you go. If you don't have love, your words And your actions are just obnoxious and empty. But again, consider the bigger context here. This isn't just about you. This is about us. This isn't just about me. This is about we. And so he says, it doesn't matter what gift we have or what gifts we have. It doesn't matter to what extremes we go. If we don't have love, then our lives and our ministry will just be obnoxious and empty. And I don't want that to define me. As your pastor, I don't want that to define you and I don't want that to define us. God is love. 1 John chapter four, verses eight and 16, it says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And so we know and, rely, and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. God is love. The goal of God's ministry is love. The goal of God's mission is love. John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved, or for God really, really, really loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him won't die, won't perish, won't go to hell, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The goal of God's ministry is love. And the way people know that we are gods is by the way that we love. John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. A new command, Jesus says, I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Spiritual gifts exercised without love, they are worthless. It doesn't matter how talented you are at whatever you are talented at. If you exercise that gift without love, it's worthless. <clears throat> but this is where it gets interesting. Now we got to ask this question. What exactly is love? I mean, what kind of love are we talking about here? There's all sorts of definitions given to love. There's, there's all different ways that, um, that, that love is defined. I mean, our culture has so many different messages in defining what love is. Are you following me? Like, culture says that sex is love. Culture says that charity is love. Culture says that tolerance and acceptance is love. Culture says that love is relative to who you are and who you're loving. Um, you know, this couple weeks ago, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day, and a, if people are talking about Martin Luther King, they'll say, man, Martin Luther King, he loved. Um, people will say that Mother Teresa, she loved. People will say Nelson Mandela, you know, he, he just recently passed away. They talk about him. They talk about his love. Pope Francis, the current Pope, they say, man, Pope Francis, that dude is full of love. Valentine's Day is coming up. And culture says that giving chocolates and flowers and a card, that's how you express love. But what exactly is love? What kind of love is Paul talking about here? If you don't see how critical of a question this really is, then let me put it this way. So love is to spiritual gifts as sheet music is to instruments, right? So love, it's like the sheet music that ties these instruments together. Therefore, it's really important that we're all looking at the same music. Hear this again. Love is to spiritual gifts as sheet music is to instruments. Love is like the sheet music that ties these instruments together. Therefore, it's really important that we're all looking at the same music. Again, I want you to experience what I'm saying here. So, Tanya, Excuse me. What's your uh, favorite song to play on the cello? You know, I would say Swan. 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 Let's hear it. (laughs) Sounds pretty cool, right? Okay. Um, Jay Wood. Favorite song to sing and play on the guitar? Uh, probably more than words by extreme. By more than words by who? Extreme. By extreme. Can, can you can we hear that? Saying I love you, not the words I want to hear from you. All right, you're good. Now, there's the appropriate time to use (coughs) (laughs) sex. There you go. Okay, Wag, what's your favorite song to play and sing on the guitar? My favorite song is a song called More of You off of my friend Jared Woods, brand new EP. Available for purchase in the back after the service if you go by. I I, I promise I'm not going to be standing at the door taking your money. I'm going to be standing at the door taking your money. Let's hear it. You want to hear some of it? Yep. Holy Spirit, for will you fall on us? As our praises rise, we receive your touch. We want more of you. More of Hi. you. <laughs> <coughs> okay, so, they're all looking at, I mean, they're, they're all playing, they're all, they're all responding to musical cues here all right, in these songs. So here's what I want you to do now. On the count of three. I want you all at the same time to play your favorite song, okay? One, two, three, go. Holy Spirit, fall, would you fall on us? As the praises rise, we receive your touch. We want more of you. More of you. And we're crying out for your presence, Lord. stop. So here's what I'm wanting you to see. Here's what I'm wanting you to see. Without music, without music, without musical cues, when they were all playing that G chord earlier, we're just loud and obnoxious. However, we've got to take it even further than that. Because in that moment, they all just had music. They all just were taking musical cues. The issue is, without a specific kind of music, they're still just going to be loud and obnoxious. And listen to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Again, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In the context of the greater body of Christ, what he's saying here is if we speak in the tongues of men and of angels or use our different spiritual gifts, but we don't have love, then we are just noisy instruments, clanging, loud, obnoxious instruments. Without love, we're just loud and obnoxious. But that in and of itself is not enough. Without a specific kind of love, we're still just loud and obnoxious. That's why this question, what kind of love are we talking about here, is so critical. And so Paul, he he tells us, verse 4, he says, love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then he says, love never ends. Where do you think he gets this definition of love? Before you just throw out an answer, I want you to think about this. See, you're licking again. You need to bite into the core of this text. Where do you think he gets this definition of love? I'm going to show you, First John 3:16. It says, "By this we know love, that He, Jesus, laid down his life for us." We learn what true love is when we sit at the foot of the cross and we observe what Jesus did. And all Paul's doing in these five verses is he's describing what he sees when he's looking at Jesus. And when we sit at the foot of the cross and look at Jesus, here's what you see. Love is patient and love is kind. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all that all should reach repentance. When we look at the cross, we see patience and kindness. When we look at the cross, we see that love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. In other words, Jesus doesn't demand his rights. Philippians chapter two, verses six and seven says, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, in other words, he is God, he did not not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of the servant. He did not demand his rights. That's, That's what we see in love when we look at Jesus. And then we see love's not irritable. Love's not resentful. That word resentful, it's an accountant word. Um, Most often it's translated counted, as in what one is owed. Romans chapter 4, you need to go back and look at that tonight. Eleven times in just like 11 verses, you see the word counted. You see this word that's translated here, resentful. In other words, love doesn't keep record of wrongs. God doesn't just, or God doesn't give us what we're owed. He shows us mercy. That's what we see when we look at the cross. Then it says, love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. So Jesus, he spoke the truth in love. You know, this happens often uh, in, in when, I'm, when I'm teaching. It's happened multiple times in the past. I'm thinking of a time a while back. Somebody brought their friend to overflow for the first time. And, um, and I was teaching. And in the midst of teaching, I said, listen, if you don't have Jesus in your heart, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, accepted his gift of forgiveness, him dying on the cross for your sins, raising him again from the dead, then if you die tonight, you are going to spend eternity in hell. First time she brought her friend... Um, uh, they're, her friend, afterwards, they're, they're talking, or I don't know when it was, they're talking. And her friend goes, Man, first time I come, that dude tells me that I'm going to hell. And I think it's funny that this person said it like this. And this, this has happened on multiple occasions. They're like, I, Why is that guy telling me I'm going to hell? It's funny because in no time in that was I saying their name or looking at them, saying to them, They're going to hell. You know what's happening in that moment when they're hearing me say to them, You're going to hell? God, in that moment, is convicting their heart. Their conscience is the one accusing them of their sin and their desperate need for Jesus to show them his love, for them to receive his love, what he did on the cross. And the reality is, and we see this in Jesus' ministry, we see this in what he did on the cross, that he did not hide the truth. He rejoiced in the truth, and sometimes the truth is hard to see. And you know what? When you look at the cross, it's disgusting. But it In being so disgusting, it is God's gracious move of showing us how disgusting our sin is and how disgusting our future will be apart from Jesus. When you look at the cross, you see Jesus did not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoiced with the truth. And then you also see Jesus, or or love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. Jesus is still interceding on your behalf. He's not done loving you, and he hasn't stopped loving you. Since the cross. Hebrews 7.25 tells us this. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. That's the kind of love that Paul's talking about. And he goes on in verse 8. He says, as, as, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in, in, in a mirror dimly... Then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. You know, for us to change the world, we need to welcome the supernatural. Um, we worship a supernatural God. We have a supernatural God who endows us with supernatural spiritual gifts. We need to stop running from the supernatural because it's mysterious to us or because it, it, it causes us to fear. One pastor, uh, Mark Driscoll, in his book, A Call to Resurgence, he says, shallow, entertainment-oriented, self-help, knock-off consumer Christianity that offers bumper sticker cliches in response to life's crises is weak sauce. And nobody likes weak sauce. People want to experience God's authentic, unfabricated power. So, for us to change the world, we need to welcome the supernatural. However, however, way more than that, We need an invasion of Jesus' love in our hearts. We need to be invaded by Jesus' love. That quote from Francis Chan earlier, so he says this in reference to 1 Corinthians 13. He says, even these words have grown tired and overly familiar, haven't they? He goes on to say, I was challenged to do a little exercise with these verses, one that was profoundly convicting. He said, take the phrase, love is patient, and substitute your name for the word love and then do it for every phrase in the passage. So what he's saying is, put your name there like Austin is patient, Austin is kind, Austin does not envy, Austin does not boast. He goes on to say, by the end, don't you feel like a liar? He says, if I'm meant to represent what love is, then I often fail to love people well. Now listen to me, there's a lot of application from this message that we can take away, but if nothing else, here's what I hope you see tonight. Even though that you and I, have failed at loving God well. And even though you and I have failed at loving other people well, God has not failed at loving us well. God's love for you, it is insane. It is crazy. It is relentless. It's long lasting. It's unstoppable and it's freakishly powerful. But there's one other thing you've got to see. And this is probably the most distinctive quality of God's love God's love is self-originating. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this text, he says, when a young man reveals his heart with a passionate declaration, I love you, and at least in in part he means that he finds the woman he loves lovely. I'm gonna read that again because I want you to hear what's, what's happening. When a young man reveals his heart with a passionate declaration, I love you, at least in part he means that he finds the woman he loves lovely. At least some of his love is elicited by the object of that love. But God loves what is unlovely. In other words, God doesn't love you because of who you are. God loves you because of who he is. God has no reason to love any one of us. I mean this room is full of people who have deliberately turned their back on God. You have deliberately turned your back on God. I have deliberately turned my back on God. This room is full of cheaters, liars, porn addicts, people who are sexually abusive, people who are manipulative, people who are gossipers, people who are lazy bums, thieves, and the list goes on. Yet God loves us. And the reality is, every second that goes by where God doesn't return to judge this world is a second added to the measure of God's grace. Because every second that he waits to return he is graciously giving you and others a chance to repent and respond to him. That's the love that Paul's talking about. And it doesn't matter how gifted you are, it doesn't matter how gifted I am. If our hearts are yet to be invaded by that love, then our lives, our words, our actions, and our efforts are bankrupt, meaningless, and worthless. So here's the question. Has your heart been invaded by the love of Christ? Has your heart been invaded by the love of Christ? When we, the church, come together with all of our gifts and all of our abilities and all our hearts have been invaded by that love of Jesus, then the result will not be something that is loud or obnoxious or empty, but it will be beautiful, rich, And life changing. D.L. Moody, a famous evangelist, he said, Catch on fire for Jesus, and the world will come watch you burn. If we let Jesus' love invade our hearts, we will see a movement of God on our campuses. But it's not just any love that's going to change the world. The type of love we're talking about does matter, it's the love of Christ. So as Christ's love invaded your hearts? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Overflow podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.